We know there's lots of zombies in the moves. We know there's lots of zombies in the movies these days, but in our fantasy leagues, we'll ask longtime fantasy expert Peter Kreutzer about being an effective league commissioner, dealing with zombies, his buy highs and sell lows for the second half, and his new music site. All next on Baseball HQ Radio. Here's the pitch by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time, and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of June the 28th. It's show number 24 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to longtime fantasy expert Peter Kreutzer, we'll have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, We'll open with player news from the National League with Harold Nichols and from the American League with columnist Jock Thompson. We'll have our regular weekly chat with Todd Zola talking about buying high. In our regular minor league minute, Rob Gordon looks at Kansas City right-handed pitching prospect Jordano Ventura. In HQ matchups, BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield looks at John Lackey hosting the Padres and Trevor Cahill of the Diamondbacks at Atlanta. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com Batting Buyer's Guide columnist Dan Becker talks about dirty deeds done dirt cheap. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Get your fab bid ready for Grady Sizemore. Hey, what do you say? We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, it's true. Nick Cafardo of the Boston Globe reported that Grady Sizemore is working out doing baseball activities and has had no issues with his wonky knees, which have seen more operations than the Navy SEALs. If he makes it all the way back to the big leagues, he could be a free agent target for any one of several teams. The Marlins, the Mets, the Twins, the Astros, and Phillies, and among the playoff contenders, maybe even the Yankees and the Nationals. But before you open up your wallet, keep in mind that Grady Sizemore hasn't played a game since 2011 and after July of that year had a 6.16 OPS. We'll have much higher averages in the first inning of our show. Our League Watch News reports, Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League. Our regular conversation with Todd Zola is in the hole and leading off the National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Good to be here. Kyle Blanks has been a guy we've been looking at over the last couple of years here on the show and at BaseballHQ.com, the website. And uh, just lately, Brent Hershey in a Fact and Fluke article looked at Kyle Blanks, who's having a pretty decent little run of success here. He is. You know, we're, we're, Kyle Blanks was a guy that looked like a pretty good prospect when he first came up. And uh, in 2009, he hit, uh, uh, hit 10 home runs and 148 at-bats and then had the uh, last two years kind of wiped out by surgery and uh, sort of disappeared from, the, from everybody's radar. Um, and so now we may look at be looking at a real kind of a post-hype uh, resurgence for Kyle Blanks. And several things are happening as you look at it. The, the, the deal with Blanks is Blanks looked like a prototypical power hitter, good power, no B.A. 
Uh, and he showed us that in 2010, 2011, when his batting average is 202, 228. Suddenly this year, he's up to 263, and some, some interesting things have happened, as Brent pointed out. The, um, his fly ball rate is down, but those fly balls are becoming line drives, so he's, he's getting uh, getting better hits, more hits out of that. He's never been a great contact hitter, but his contact rate is up just a little bit. Uh, and so uh, his, his right now, an 18% homer for fly rate might be a little bit high, but here's a guy with an with a uh, an expected BA of 263. He's actually hitting 269. Uh, could could be worth something over the second half of the season. Of course, the big concern here is going to be injuries. You mentioned uh, uh, that he's had injuries: Tommy John surgery in '11, uh, shoulder labrum surgery in 2012. So that's got to be a bit of a of a red flag. But uh, Kyle Blank's playing time situation doesn't look that bad either. No, it looks like, like now there are enough injuries going on in San Diego. He can play both first base and outfield. Looks like he could, uh, in fact, get some decent playing time. But you're right, he's got to remain healthy, and that we haven't seen yet uh, over the last couple of seasons. His ability to remain on the, remain on the field is, is certainly a question. Dan Becker at BaseballHQ.com, the Batting Buyer's Guide columnist, also our Master Notes commentator this week, had an article recently about our hard contact index metric, which we're we rolled out a couple of years ago and have been gradually incorporating into our batting coverage. And basically it's an index of how often a batter makes hard contact with the ball and compares it to the rest of the league. So 100 is a league average. Anything higher than that is above league average. And uh, one name that jumped off the list, Carlos Gomez of Milwaukee, has been scalding it. Carlos Gomez has really been scalding it. I mean, Carlos Gomez is a guy we've always liked his skills. He's good speed, good power, but awful B.A., and uh, he's still a bit of a uh, a bit of a very uh, um, hacker kind of uh, kind of hitter. Doesn't get many walks. Uh, but but what 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 Becker pointed out about Carlos Gomez is this season he is really hitting the ball hard, uh, and that may may be the reason that we're seeing a better batting average out of him, uh, far better than uh, than we're used to in the past. And Carlos Gomez has the kind of skills if he can keep his BA even up around 260 to 270, he's got enough speed and enough power that he's certainly worth having in your lineup. So far this season, he's hitting over 300. The uh, hard contact index metric, which we invented a couple of years ago, does tie pretty nicely into a lot of outcomes. Uh, batting average, because uh, and home runs, of course, but batting average is helped because hitting the ball hard helps create um, base hits. Even ground balls, if they're hit hard, have a much better chance of scooting through to become hits. And when you look at the list of uh, what he calls in the column scorchers, which is guys with very high hard contact indexes. You see names at the top like American Leaguers, David Ortiz, Miguel Cabrera, but also National League guys, uh, Paul Goldschmidt's on the list. You see Troy Tulowitzki, Gomez is right there. Matt Holliday is a consistent guy in this regard. And uh, there's also a name on here that I think is interesting. Jonathan Lucroy of, of Milwaukee also seems to be hitting the ball very hard. So it's a pretty interesting list. It is. A, it's a very interesting list, and, and certainly the names that you mentioned seem to help validate the uh, the metric. And uh, it's certainly worth looking at because, as you said, the harder the ball is hit, the better chance there is usually of that turning into a base hit. And the question, of course, is, is hitting the ball hard a skill? And increasingly, I think we believe that it is. It's a a hand-eye thing, a timing thing, and it's just uh, something that the same guys keep turning up year after year at the top of that list. Therefore, it starts to look an awful lot like a skill. Uh, back to Brent Hershey's Fact and Flukes column. He covered Ricky Nolasco of Miami, and uh, Brent pointed out he's not going to compete for any wins titles. But right now, his ERA results are looking pretty good, and he's got the skills to match. 
You know, Ricky Nolasco is a guy we've always kind of liked in terms of his skills, but he's never been able to match those with his ERA. In fact, if you look over the past the past several seasons, his ERA is is almost a full run above his xERA every single season. So it's a guy that's consistently shown good skills, good control, uh, good dominance, but never been able to put together an ERA to go with them. And suddenly this year it seemed to be coming together for him. A 3.68 ERA, 100 innings pitched so far. The problem, of course, is he's pitching for Miami. But but Ricky Nolasco is the is probably one of the first guys who's going to go in terms of uh, of a trade. Uh, Miami's ready to trade him. A lot of uh, suitors are are knocking at the door, and Ricky Nolasco I think could be traded almost any day. So if he moves to a team like uh, San Francisco or Los Angeles, uh, a team where he can get more wins, then certainly Ricky Nolasco looks a lot better. Yeah, he does. And uh, the thing about Ricky Nolasco that's really appealing is from 2009 through 2012. Uh, well over 100 innings all those years, 158. He had a DL stint in 2010, but 206 in, in 2011, 191 last year. This is a guy who's got some reliability on his side as well as having those good skills, albeit somewhat buried in the Marlins situation. Yeah, he does indeed. You know, here's a guy who can pile up the innings, and we've seen that over the last few seasons. If he can keep his ERA down below four, then he certainly has some value. Stephen Nickrand at BaseballHQ.com, our starting pitching buyer's guide columnist, sent out a tweet on Twitter. I always feel somewhat self-conscious, Nick, talking about somebody sending out a tweet. (laughs) (laughs) Something to do with my age, I think, rather than the the technology. But he was looking at Carlos Villanueva, starting pitcher in Chicago, and said that this is a guy who might be a dark horse to take over as the closer from uh, Kevin Gregg in Chicago. What do you think? And you know, Brent Brent Hershey mentioned the same uh, the same thing in a divisional outlook column that uh, came up on the site uh, on the site this Friday. And uh, yeah, you know, I think there's a real possibility here. If you look at certainly Kevin Gregg is likely to be traded. I mean, there's no reason for the Cubs to hang on to him. Uh, there are teams out there looking for closers, and he certainly has established his stock pretty well uh, in terms of the success he's had in Chicago so far. So, if Kevin Gregg leaves, as seems likely, the question is who takes over. One possibility is James Russell. James Russell has pitched very well, uh, 8.0 uh, Dom, 2.5 control, uh, but he's a lefty, and that, that may be a, a, a question mark with some people and some managers, whether you want a lefty uh, as your closer. And so then you look at Villanueva, and since Villanueva's overall numbers are are kind of um, uh, hidden, by his, 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 his work in relief is hidden by his overall numbers. He started, began the year in the rotation, was so-so in the rotation, but since he went back to the pen, we're looking at 9.5 DOM, 3.5 command, 2.70 ERA. That's over the past five weeks, and he's pitched very, very well. And the interesting thing about that is those numbers are kind of validated by his relief work in 2008 and 2010 when he put up very similar numbers working out of the pen. So here's a guy that uh, that really seems to have the profile we look for in a successful closer. He's got some skills uh, and uh, certainly might be able to take the role and run with it if given the opportunity. I just checked his uh, his career level um, BPIs as a starter and a reliever, and his uh, command ratio, strikeouts to walks, is about the same starting and relieving. But his uh, strikeouts per nine innings is way higher. It's over nine. I think you mentioned in relief, uh, barely over six as a starter. That's a huge difference, and you see it in the results. His OPS against as a starter for his career is seven ninety three, so almost eight hundred. That's not so good. But as a reliever, it's 678, so under 700, that is good. Very definitely. So here's a guy that might be worth kind of tucking away over the next couple of weeks be, to see if you've got a spot on your roster. Certainly the kind of guy you can tuck away and see what happens with him. 
Carlos Villanueva may be worth a gamble. Nick, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes regularly for BaseballHQ.com and is our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League. It's BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back to the show. Hi, PD. How are you doing this week? Doing good. Uh, for people who are interested in following the seemingly endless story of our renovations, we're probably about two weeks away. We should be done by July the 10th or so and be very glad of it. Uh, Speaking of renovations, the Seattle Mariners, Jock, are renovating their outfield. They had recalled Franklin Gutierrez. Now they've put him back on the DL this past Wednesday. And here's a bit of a surprise. They recalled Dustin Ackley from AAA Tacoma. He's a second baseman who's been making the transition to the outfield. Jock, you've covered all this in your American League West Division Outlook column. What the heck is going on here? Well, I think the real issue with Seattle right now, PD, is the fact that they have a lot of unhealthy outfielders, and it's not just Franklin Gutierrez who, who Spot Ackley took on the uh, on the roster. Um, Michael Morris has been hurt; he's had a hamstring problem. Um, ditto uh, uh, Jason Bay, and uh, they just can't rely on any of these guys. And so they 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 did call up Ackley, and it was a little bit premature. But on the other hand, Ackley was pretty much raking down in AAA Seattle. He had a 9.72 OPS. His uh, his walk-to-strikeout ratio was very similar to what he'd done in Seattle. So it looks like he's going to get another shot, but it's a little earlier than Seattle wanted to do this. How does it play for Raul Abanez getting some PT? Well, Abanez has really been uh, Seattle's savior, at least in terms of hitting home runs. Uh, he's not hitting much for average, but he's he's really providing the power um, he's still a guy, I think, who, uh, as long as he keeps hitting home runs, he's going to be in the lineup at least through early August and until some of these guys get healthy. He's probably going to lose some playing time down the stretch in August and September as, as Seattle really starts to audition some of their younger players. But uh, if not for them, uh, Seattle's offense, they, they may not have any. Dustin Ackley, as a second baseman, wasn't delivering the goods. Uh, it's hard to imagine him being an offensively useful outfielder. No, you're right. Uh, the one thing that he had going for him was that batting eye that we talk about so much. But uh, in in Seattle, he hadn't done much at all. I think the complaint about him was that he wasn't being aggressive enough when he was getting his pitches. So it'll be interesting to see what he does the second time around. Did you get any inkling from uh, covering this story, Jock, that the Mariners might think second base is too much for Ackley defensively and that the shift to the outfield might help his offense? Yeah, I think the real issue there, PD, is they have some middle infielders coming up. They have to have a place for Ryan Franklin to play. And Franklin has been tearing it up ever since he's he's come up from Seattle. They also have another guy, Brad Miller, who can play shortstop or second base. Um, they weren't particularly thrilled with Ackley's fielding. So, again, they're hoping he can be a, an offensive player in the outfield, which obviously remains to be seen. If I remember correctly, Ackley was a first baseman in college and quite a hitter. Uh, in that role, but of course, the uh, college and the big leagues are m- much different things. Uh, another roster change, uh, Matt Dodge at BaseballHQ.com covered in playing time today. The Boston Red Sox finally tired of Will Middlebrook's long slump. They sent him to AAA, and they're going to go with Jose Iglesias at third for the time being. This third base situation in Boston, uh, do you think that maybe they th- hope that Jose Iglesias becomes another Manny Machado? The thing about Iglesias that's really interesting is that if you look at his minor league numbers, he hit something like, well, I got it here right in front of me. Let's look at it. He hit 202 and 119 at bats in Pawtucket, and he's never had this sort of performance uh, history 
uh, in his past. Uh, right now, um, let's see, let me look at it here. He, he actually has an 86% contact rate, and his, his uh, expected batting average is 289. So, yeah, he's, he's definitely taking advantage of, a, of an inflated hit rate, which is going to subside. It's a 48% hit rate, and he's batting 419 and 117 at bats. Uh, but there has been some marginal improvement here. Now, Middlebrooks is a little bit of a different story. I mean, the, the one difference between him and last year is the fact that his hit rate uh, is, is, is down. Last year, he had a 34% hit rate. This year, it's 22%. Almost all of his other metrics are, are in line and close, which gives everybody a, a, an idea of what an inflated hit rate can do for you. Well, it sure can. And uh, the thing I remember about looking at Will Middlebrooks, in the run-up to this season, you know, when you're making your plans about guys you might want to target in your draft, is that Will Middlebrook swings and misses an awful lot. Yeah, his contact rate is down a few points. It was only 74% last year when he had the, the 288 batting average and the 15 homers. And he's still on track to hit, uh, he's still on pace to hit that many home runs as well. But uh, his, his contact is down to 70%, and he's having a lot less hit rate luck. So hence the 192 batting average, and that's what got him demoted. Back in the American League West, your stomping grounds, Jock, uh, Peter Burgos sat out the entire series against Detroit with a jammed thumb. What is going on with Peter Burgos? He seems to be constantly injured. And what can we make of J.B. Shuck, his replacement? Well, this was kind of a fluky injury. I was actually at the game when it happened, and he was sliding in to break up a double play, which he did successfully, and his hand hit the base and jammed back. I'm I'm holding my breath on Borges because he's been a catalyst for the Angels uh, recently since he's been back. He also has had some, some hit rate luck, which we've been talking about this segment. But uh, Borges is the kind of guy whose speed is going to allow him to, to have a high hit rate. Um, he's always going to out-hit his expecting batting average, and he has a touch of power. Um, if he can do that successfully, he's going to be a productive player. Dave Adler also covered uh, Peter Borjos and J.B. Shuck's situation uh, back in early June, especially looking at Shuck in a facts and flukes column. And Dan Becker looked at Shuck as a possible bleeder in his Scorchers and Bleeders batting buyer's guide column recently as well. Uh, staying with the Angels, Jock Jared Weaver, everybody was looking forward to him coming back from the D.L., but he just hasn't been the same pitcher since he came back. And uh, Matt Cederholm covered Jared Weaver's travails in a facts and flukes column this past week. Any advice for uh, all of us non-Angel fans watching this situation? Well, I think pretty much all of us who looked at this carefully saw Weaver's velocity declining. I know Stephen Nickran did and I did watching him, and we were all a little worried about that. I think the thing that I'm noticing now that really has me worried is that his command just hasn't been there this year. I've always thought that Weaver was one of those pitchers who could pitch with, with decreased velocity because he had such separation between his changeup and his fastball, and he could drop that changeup on a dime. And that really hasn't been happening. His his walk rate is up. Um his uh, his hit rate is up. His expected ERA is up. Uh, I'll cross a little bit of this off to Russ, but uh, I'm I'm frankly a little bit concerned about him here. Concerned enough that you'd say this is a, just a pitcher to avoid at this point? I'm not sure what to think about that because if the command comes back, I think he's going to be good again. But I don't think I don't think we're going to see the Jared Weaver that we've seen in peak years. So um, again, I I think his ceiling is a lot lower than it used to be. Well, his command is off by uh, almost .7. Uh, he's last year 3.2 strikeouts per every walk. This year 2.5. So that that is 
a still a good command ratio. 2.5 is nothing to sneeze at, but it's definitely decline. It's the fourth straight year of decline as well. So uh, I agree with you. There's some cause for concern there. So if you were thinking about maybe buying low on Jared Weaver, think again. Uh, finally, in the American League Central, Joaquin Benoit has finally taken over the closer role from Jose Valverde. Long time coming. In his bullpen buyer's guide this past week, Doug Dennis said that Maybe Benoit can ha- can hold the job, but there are some warnings. What's your opinion? Yeah, I think Doug is 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 right. Uh, I love Benoit's skills, and if you look at him for the for the past uh, few years, past three four years, he looks like he has uh, closer worthy skills. Um, the problem is, I think that uh, with without the proven closer next to his name, if he has a hiccup or two, Jim Leyland has shown that he's more than willing to play matchups or make a switch. Um, I think Benoit's the best thing Detroit has, and they'll give him some rope. Um, but he's going to have to be successful over the next two three weeks to keep his manager's uh, confidence. Well, you got a like so far this year. Ten point six strikeouts per nine innings for a dom ratio. His control two point six walks per nine is excellent. Uh, that's a four point one strikeout to walk command ratio. That's just getting the job done in a in a very substantial way and a one forty base performance value, which is a combined metric of all his skills. Is there any reason to think this guy can't succeed, except for the fact that in the past he really hasn't been a closer? No, I mean, none that I can see. I mean, I agree with you. His metrics, his, his BP uh, eyes all look terrific. Uh, he looks great, and his his ground ball rate is up so far. So the one thing that could possibly derail him that hurt him last year was his fly ball rate and an, an inflated home run per fly ball. He had a 1.8 home runs per nine innings last year, and I think that might be one of the reasons Leyland may still have some hesitation. But that 1.8 home run per nine ratio was the direct result of an 18% home run per fly ratio. That's normally closer to 10% for all pitchers. And just looking at from 2005 onwards, the percentages for uh, for Benoit were 8, 5, 7, 8, 9, 7, 18 being the obvious outlier. And he's back to 7% this year with a home run per nine of 0.6. It looks like whatever was going on last year might have been just an, an anomaly based on a small sample. No, I agree with you. The only thing that makes me hesitate just a little bit and thinks this this conceivably, not likely, could happen again is the fact that Benoit has never had a historically high ground ball rate. His ground ball rate has always been in the 30s, so there's a little bit of danger there, but I think like yourself, I still like him for the job. 39%, 39% in 010 and 011, 40% this year. It's you know, it's a, it's a new first digit in a two-digit number, but it's not that big of a difference. Jock, thanks very much for talking with us again this week. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Okay, PD. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time to talk with Todd, our weekly conversation with BaseballHQ.com research contributor Todd Zola. Todd, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. Todd, last week at ESPN.com, where you write regularly as an insider about fantasy baseball, uh, you had an interesting column about buy-high candidates, and I know the standard operating definition of how to do a trade or how to do a roster transaction in general is buy low, sell high. But as you point out in the article, that's pretty much impossible to do because everybody's trying to do it. Yeah, I, I love listening to the radio and, and reading people's you know trade articles. And it's so easy to suggest to do that. You know, it, it makes sense from a theoretical point of view, but I don't know. I just, uh, I think that it's kind of cliche advice. So uh, I have sort of over the years, coined my own way of getting around that or, or, or playing into that, so to speak. And uh, 
I'm willing to buy high, and uh, some people, after reading my ESPN pieces, think that's my mental state, but it's uh, it's it's not. It's it's the uh, it's the player. Do you try to buy a player that some other guy thinks he's selling high because you want to either get the uh, you believe that he's going to maintain the performance or that it could even get better? Right. Or the the, diff- the main thing being, if he does regress or come back down to earth a little bit, the the, the new baseline, you think the new baseline is higher than the person trading the player. So going forward, you see the player you know, producing at a higher level. It could be that you think he's going to maintain. Uh, so, so it's a matter of looking at the underlying metrics to see if there's a, a new skill involved, and you know, not just a high BABIP, so to speak. If there's a reason when the player does settle, when the dust settles, well, is he better than he was last year? So that's what I look for, players who I think have developed a new skill, and that skill is sustainable. A couple of batting examples you used were first baseman uh, Paul Goldschmidt came into the year. Uh, people were high on him. Don't don't get me wrong. He went for a sizable sum in uh, in tout wars, I know, and uh, and people were not unaware of his potential. But I think he and Chris Davis both have surprised perhaps Davis more than Goldschmidt. More people believed in Goldschmidt than I did. I don't want to say that they were right and I was wrong because uh, next year, if there's a different player with the same profile. I'll have the same reticence going in, and maybe I'll be right and they'll be wrong. The reticence has to do with uh, contact rate in Goldschmidt's case. He he had a much improved contact rate last year over the previous season, but I needed to see that again before I used that as his baseline contact rate. And he's shown, at least up to this point this year, that around the 22% K percentage that he had uh, last season is... is He's keeping it. He's he's uh, he's reduced the not reduced the strikeouts, but he's sustained the rate that he showed last season, which is enough for me at this point of the year to call it real. And I don't think this uh, I don't think this is a fluke. What we're seeing, I think this is the real deal, and I think he's actually better than what we thought going in because he's got a little bit more power. Now I don't know the power could fall back in the second half, but he's convinced me that he's the real deal. And Chris Davis, kind of following along in those same footsteps, uh, maybe a year a year later, he's got his contact rate up uh, nicely over his past. He was a, a very strikeout-prone player for the longest time, which caused a lot of people to think he was never going to be a top-tier player. Uh, batting average implications, of course, for, for high strikeout rate hitters, but also RBI implications. You can't drive in runs when you're striking out. Yeah, he's... Uh... He's doing what we all thought Brandon Wood would do uh, over the years, and, and he's, he's, he's made it happen. He's reduced the strikeouts. Now, he's a perfect example. Next year, when we talk in the spring, I'm not going to be as high on Chris Davis because I'm not going to be willing to assume he repeats the reduced strikeouts. Now, again, could be wrong again, but you know, to me, I'm going to expect a rate a little bit worse than wherever he ends up this year. And that's going to impact all the different numbers, and I'm going to have him dropped a little bit, uh, probably enough that means you know I won't be drafting him because someone else is going to like him just a little bit more. Um, I think you know we found over the years that more players will fall back than sustain. You and I both have looked in the past in researching uh, baseball statistics for fantasy purposes at this whole idea of of period of how long periods are before they become valid. And the example that I came up with a year or two ago was if you look at Derek Jeter's 300-plus batting average over his career, 
if you look at short enough clumps, it could be anything from 100 to 500. And I'm wondering at what point when you look at a guy like Chris Davis, do you say, all right, I buy the skill at this point? And in fact, do skills vary as much as outcomes? Yeah, now th- this is something, it's it's an ongoing project that I'm having. We've, we've touched on it in the past. I'm sure we'll touch on it again in the future. And there's some work out there that shows when skills stabilize, different skills, contact rate, walk rate, uh, home run rate, etc. The first skill to stabilize, or at least to that you can infer that some of it is real when it's happening, is contact, which is one of the reasons why I'm so confident to say that I think Chris Davis will continue on this path because that's the skill that he's showing. Uh, as we, you know, we also talked about is regression doesn't always follow the same timetable for each player. Some players, it happens very quickly. Other players, it takes longer, you know, for the water to find its level. The slope might not be as steep. But eventually it will. Gravity will win out at the very end. It just may. It may not. Be, it may even be more than a season for it to happen. Some Matt Cain may be uh, maybe finding out. You know, it may be all. It maybe took four years for it to happen with, with someone like Matt Cain. Uh, so uh, I'm at the point though with with players that are showing improved contact that I think at least in part it's going to be. I don't know that I'm not going to put a number on it. But I'm going to say that if a guy is, is, is improving his contact over, over, his, over his career, I don't know by how much, but he can continue to improve it going forward. Well, Chris Davis uh, in, in 2010 through 12 was at 67, 68, 67%. This year at 70%, it doesn't seem like that big of a gain. Uh, on the other hand, he's also improved his walk rate at the same time, which has uh, really greatly improved his eye ratio of walks to strikeouts. How much of an increase... Todd, do you look at and say that's a significant increase over what seems to be, at first glance, 68% two years ago, 70% this year? It's not doesn't seem like that big of a, of a jump. <laughs> it was more pronounced when I did the piece. But as we know, Davis is this sort of streaky guy. It's going to go into cycles. When it's around 5% difference is when it, it catches my eye because there's going to be some just normal variance uh, around it anyway. Um, if you just take a look from year to year from people's strikeout and contact rates, depending on which angle you want to look at it, I tend to use the words interchangeably, although there is there is a difference. One of them's with plate appearances and one of them's with at-bats, but uh, in the end of the day, they sort of both mean the same thing, if you're hitting the ball or not. Um, but a difference of around five percentage points catches my eye. Anything else is just normal variation from year to year. And for at one point anyway, he was... Uh, into the 70s, as opposed to just uh, just barely at 70 percent, he had cut it down not significantly. When you're still striking out 28 or 27 percent of the time, it's still a lot. But it considering is. it was much fewer, even greater before that, so he may have just recently had a few games, and you know he'll he'll go on another tear. And guys like that, and Jay Bruce or whatever, it's going to fluctuate around. A baseline, but I think the baseline itself is a little bit better. And again, I'd like to draw attention to the fact that in the last three years, 2011, a 5% walk rate, up to 7% last year, and his OPS climbed 100 points, up to 10% this year, and his OPS is up another 280 points or so. Uh, do you put any stock in the in the walk rate, which seems to me to indicate that he's being 
at least a little more choosy about what he's swinging and missing at if he's swinging and missing. And when he is hitting the ball, he's hitting it in a better place to hit it, which accounts for a much higher hit rate this year, a BABIP, than in past years as well. Sure. I think you know it's a two-pronged sword or two-pronged sword. <laughs> uh, a double-edged sword there in that you know part of it's because pitchers are being more careful, but I think He's also more discerning, you know, his eye is more discerning as well. I think it's, you know, part of his overall maturation as a player. Um, You know, I've got, you know, I've got him at a, the the percentage I'm looking at now for a strikeout percent is 26%. So, you know, compared to a normal of of a little over 30. So there is around that five percentage points difference, uh, at least for K percent. Um, so I think that that is pretty significant. Walk rate, he's at that 10% that we really like, that double-digit number. Um, and the other thing, I think that we've done regression studies that show uh, walk walk rates correlate pretty well to power. And that is just like you said, your, your, your eye is more discerning. You're swinging at better pitches to swing at and driving them, not only your BABIP up, but your power's up as well. On the pitching side, a couple of guys you looked at and liked as buy-high candidates were uh, Jeff Samarja um, of the Chicago Cubs, high strikeout guy, and more intriguingly, uh, Hisashi Iwakuma, the most valuable pitcher in all of baseball the last time I checked on the BaseballHQ.com valuation tables of the Seattle Mariners. Man, this guy has absolutely come out of nowhere, and of course everybody's expecting some kind of huge correction, especially in Iwakuma's case, and you're arguing here that, yes, it's going to happen, but it's not going to be as severe as a lot of people seem to think. Right, yeah, that goes back to the, you know, the whole buy-high thing, is uh, people see the, the 237 BABIP, or that's what it was at the time of the article. I can, uh, and so, oh, geez, you know, the, uh, the array is going to crash. Uh, if he's out of Seattle, we're in trouble, he, you know, that sort of thing. I see enough other skills. He, he is, his, uh, his walk and strikeout rates are better than they were last year. So to me, he's a, he's a more skilled pitcher. So I I come from the school that you can control the BABIP to a certain degree. The noise may mask that, but if there is no noise and it's everything's as it should be, uh, you know when that when the dust settles, his BABIP might be a little bit below league average, and therefore the crash won't be as severe. And and who knows, it may not even occur. And. His strand rate is also very high, 81% last year, 83% this year. Uh, the normal expectation is around 70 or 72 or so. And that also has been pointed to as a reason to sell high on Iwakuma. But uh, I remember talking once about Jared Weaver with Gene McCaffrey about uh, about this unusually high uh, pop-up and infield fly and short fly ball rate that J- uh, Jared Weaver had. And, and McCaffrey's point was, He's done it for six straight years. At some point, we have to say this is a skill. And I'm wondering, you're looking at now two straight years of Iwakuma being able to maintain a very high strand rate and a relatively low uh, BABIP. Gosh, if a guy keeps doing it at some point, don't you just say, I guess for some reason we don't maybe understand, he can do this. Yeah, certain things, yes. Now, the other thing, uh, as far as strand rate goes, the league average is 72%, but Better starting pitchers have been shown they can cluster around 77 or 78 uh, percent. If you look at it, it's so I don't I don't know that it's the same sort of thing as BABIP or home run per fly ball. It, it isn't that there is a, a baseline, but good starting pitchers are able to 
control a little bit more, mainly because there's more skill involved with 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 uh, left on vapors, left on base, the strand rate. People also need to remember what it actually measures. It's irrespective of the amount of base runners, the number of base runners. It's just the percentage of base runners that that you do happen to allow to score. Uh, so some people look at the high or low number and assume an ERA is going to do a certain thing, but that's only half the story, the other half being how many runners are actually on base. Yeah, of course, you'd rather have a guy who's allowing 72% of very few runners to score rather than a yeah. guy who's who's allowing only 20% of a lot of runners to score because it's still going to be more runs either way. Quickly switching to Samarja, uh, the concern here has always been walk rate. Yeah, now walk rates take a little longer to settle than than do strikeout rates but his control is, i mean you know extremes in small samples bill james tell us you know have a better have a chance to be real his uh his control has now occurred over a long enough of a time that i'm be, i'm willing to to assume that some of it is real now he's he's going to be a guy next year that again i'm going to give back some of that walk rate so I may not, I may not be getting Jeff Samarja. I I do in my keeper leagues. I'll have him, but in redraft leagues, I'm not so sure because people are all over all over him this year. I don't, you know, next year it's going to be off the charts. But he's a guy that if uh, if people want to cash in because they're afraid that walk rate is going to uh, climb up a little bit. I'm, you know, I'll be more than happy to take Mr. Samarja off your hands. Yeah, I like Samarja too. Uh, his 2013 is looking an awful lot like 2012, uh, which was an excellent year for skills and for results. The only thing is going to be uh, probably a little difficulty getting wins because of a, a relatively poor club. Uh, Todd, thanks very much for talking with us. We'll catch up with you again next week. And in the meantime, what are you working on uh, for for your various uh, outlets? Actually, well, we're working on a on a piece for. Uh, for this little site called Baseball HQ uh, that's coming up that should be, we're going to have posted my first research piece posted next week. I'm going to take a look at some uh, pitching, as it turns out, take a look to see what pitchers work better from the, the stretch versus the windup and how that may be impacting their first season performance and who, during the second half, might we expect a shift one way or another so these guys are we can either target in trades or... In, in, in some of the more shallow leagues, guys that may might want to pick up off the waiver wire if they're even available. And it's a, it's a busy weekend. It's my, uh, my on-weekend for ESPN Insider, and I've got a piece that's going to discuss. Uh, it's going to start by discussing the, the dichotomy of these two forces that we talk about, that water always finds its level. Players with a history, they get their numbers. But yet, as we'll talk about, as we talk about in March, only 35 to 40 percent of first-round players return value, so less than half the players didn't get their numbers. So these are two two forces going against each other. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that in terms of in-season updates for projections, which I know is a hot-button topic on the HQ forums. I, I do them myself, so I know how you know they fluctuate, and I, I see it firsthand. And we try to figure out ways to to mitigate it, but the numbers are the numbers. So I'm going to bridge that into um, into guys, as we talked about contact rate, I'm going to look at the players that had the biggest contact rate shift in the first month of the year and how they're doing, and is that really a good way to determine if a skill is real, at least anecdotally on five or ten players who in April had a poor contact rate or better contact rate and see how they're doing now. 
Well, I sure like that idea as a concept. Uh, players always uh, have their outcomes even out, except when they don't. Yeah. Todd, thanks very much. We'll t- catch up with you again in a week's time. Excellent. Talk to you later, Patrick. Todd Zola writes for BaseballHQ.com, for ESPN.com, for MastersBall.com, and is just one of the busiest guys and one of the guys you really should be reading. Get on the web. Find Todd Zola. Coming up next, we'll have our feature interview with Peter Kreutzer, Commissioner of Tout Wars, a longtime fantasy expert himself. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Pookie Wilson still hoping to win it for New York. Three and two the count. And the pitch by Stanley. And a ground ball. Quickling. It is a fair ball. Gets by Buckner. Down the third night. The Mets will win the ball game. The Mets win. They win. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. It's a pleasure now to be joined by a guest with a long and storied past in fantasy baseball all the way back to the very earliest days of the game. From AskRotoman.com, he's a Tout Wars commissioner and an all-around good guy. Peter Kreutzer, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Uh, Thank you, Patrick. I'm glad to be here. Before we get started on talking about players and stuff, I always like to catch up with how our guests are doing in their leagues. I know you are in Tout Wars as a player as well as a commissioner. What other leagues and formats are you in, and how are your teams doing overall? Well, <laughs> I wish I had better news to report. Um, I play in the American Dream League, which is a, the um, first American American League format um, team, started by some of the guys who started the original Rotisserie League. Um, and we, so we, we have the long and stories past. Um, in that league, a, a week, Ten days ago, I was in uh, third place for a few hours. Seemed to be set in fourth place for, well, not set. The, the deal there is the from first place to um, tenth place is about 15 points. And right now, I'm in about, I think I'm in eighth place um, after a couple of bad days of pitching. It's it's really a, quite a jumble. Um, my team is is pretty solid. It's pretty good. I think I have a decent chance to win there, but I. I need to get better performances out of James Shields and uh, Justin Verlander, who have been kind of miserable the last two weeks. Um, in Tower Wars itself, I uh, came out of the draft feeling pretty pretty good about my pitching. I knew I was a hitter short and um, and have managed to fill in some holes recently with uh, Ryan Sweeney, who's been hitting a little bit, and, and Jordy Mercer, who's, who's taken over as a regular um, player as opposed to a fill-in guy and is actually hitting a bit. Um, I'm still at the bottom of the middle clump there, and uh, th- that's another case where there are three guys. In uh, Todd Todd Zola is in second, uh, Tristan Cockroft is in first, and and um, I think uh, Phil Hertz is in third. And uh, and they're they're like a good bump ahead of everybody else. And then there's about six of us who are who are in the middle. And uh, I'm in that group, and I hope to move up in that group in the coming weeks because of some changes that I've made, some improvements. And then I play in um, a league that I'll give a shout-out for that was started by some guys who um, used to come to the Rotoman uh, discussion board, which is now defunct because of spammers mostly. But um, my team is terrible there. It's always terrible. It's a 20-team mixed um, mixed league using Yahoo-sized rosters, and it's a concept which, try as I might, I just don't seem to be able to get a handle on. I just hold on to my guys who are going bad for too long and because uh, I think they're going to get good and it, it, my team suffers for it. It's, uh, anyway, so that's, that's how it's going for me. 
At this stage of the year, uh, Ron Chandler at BaseballHQ.com had a column a couple of weeks ago about how much you can move in a, in particular formats, given us given a particular amount of time. And and he's, I'm wondering from your experience and from your perspective, how far behind can you be at uh, as we roll around to the uh, end of June, start of July, and still think you have a reasonable chance at making either the money or winning your league outright? I. You know, we are right at the halfway mark here, and you can see what the spread is in each league, and you can say, well, that's um, that's how much uh, that's how much of a spread in each category can open up from opening day to halfway through the season. There's no reason to think that the same spread can't be opened up in reverse, um, theoretically at least, going in the second half of the season. There are a couple of things that um, work against that. One of which is that teams that get out to a lead, I think this is a, a very important thing, teams that get out to a fast start have then have the option to start dealing away their, their players who um, have been hot and uh, performing above their level and replace them with players who help them in the categories where they need help. Um, so they actually get to improve themselves at very at very little cost to, to that um, to that point. And so it becomes increasingly difficult to catch the front runners. And in Tower Wars, I think it will be incredibly hard for any of us in the middle of the pack to catch Tristan or Todd or, or Phil, who's trailing by Tristan by about ten points. It's it's possible, but it's it'll you know it's going to be very very difficult. Um, I, I, otherwise, beyond that, I mean, I've been in situations where I've had teams that were deep in the second division even in August, and you get a couple of um, hot guys, they can carry you in, you know, who you pick up or who um, revive themselves some, somehow after seeming to be defunct, and they can carry you a long way, and, and that's where looking at the spread at the, at the midway point is, is kind of instructive to what can possibly be made up in the second half. I think something that a lot of players almost always overestimate is the difficulty of making a move in ERA and WHIP. You don't have that many innings in at this point, so whatever your ERA or WHIP is, it isn't as solidly established as, for example, batting average is with you know three thousand or thirty five hundred at bats. You're probably only at four hundred and fifty or five hundred innings, or maybe six hundred, if you're one of those guys who carries a lot of starters, and it is manageable to move up a fair number of points in a hurry in those categories if you make the moves to get rid of the guys who are likely to kill your ERA and whip and add guys who are likely to help. That's true. <laughs> Making it work is, is, um, is, is no easy matter. I've, I've tried. Um, uh, one, one tactic is to replace those dubious, um, those dubious starters with safe-as-milk middle relievers who, you know, generally are supposed to have better ERAs and ratios um, because of the way the, the situations they pitch in. But it doesn't, it's very, very hard to find those guys at this point and get them in there and then actually have them perform. Um, at, at the start of this year, I picked up Drew Storen because I thought, not because I thought he was going to save games, but I thought if safe situations arose there, he might get them. But I also thought, here's a solid ERA and ratio guy, and he's, you know, he's kind of consistently killed in the first half in, in terms of ERA and ratio. Um, the, isolating those guys and having them perform are two different 
matters. Uh, sometimes it's better just to, you know, stick with your good starters. And well, I mean, you have to go someplace, so it's a it's worth a shot. But it, it's um, it's not a it's not a surefire thing by any means to think that you can manipulate your ERA and ratio at this point. No, it's not a surefire thing, but it's an avenue to to moving up in the in the standings. Especially if you look at your situation, you say, "I don't have that many avenues." Yeah, no, I, I'm not. I'm I'm not. I wasn't really. I wasn't contesting that at all. I, I agree completely. And you're right. It is absolutely a path to improving your team. When there are there can be not many ways to improve your team. The the issue really is that um, it's just that those. All those pitchers have their ups and downs, and um, it, it, it's going to take a little bit of luck for for all those pieces to land in a row the way you want them to, with the best intentions. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt, with Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoman.com. And Peter, you're the commissioner of the Tout Wars Mixed League, and I have to say you do an excellent job with it. I'm in the league, and uh, it's a very well-run league. The whole organization is very well-run. But what do you think are the keys to doing the job of commissioner well? Being the commissioner is really a matter of um, being attentive and showing up and uh, taking care of the, whatever issues arise in as timely a manner as you can. Um, the, it, the structure that we have in, in Tout Wars is, None of the commissioners come from play in the leagues that they're in, so we're, for the most part, impartial, um, impartial to the results in the league. Uh, I, I share. I am the commissioner of the two mixed leagues. Um, Todd Zola is the commissioner of the American League, and and uh, Perry Van Hook is the commissioner of the NL League. We all play in other leagues, in in different leagues than we're in. Um, so we bring objectivity in in that sense, and. Um, we also, I think, all three of us, those guys do great jobs um, as, as well. Um, we have an interest in parsing the, the language of the rules when people try to, and as well as the intent of the rules. And when people come up with, let's say, novel interpretations of what the rules say, um, we do a pretty good job of deciding based on what the intent of the rule it was, but whether it could be reasonably uh, if a reasonable person could read into it the, the little twist that whatever owner came up with, you know, we sometimes rule against what the intent was because the language was at, as it was at fault, not not in, in any player twisting. So it's, it's just that the attention to that and trying to apply the rules evenly across the board, I think that's what a commissioner should do. I think you, you mentioned uh, having... Uh the advantage of being in the league but not in the specific league. You're a, t- you're a long-time Tout Wars participant. All three of you are in leagues that you don't act as commissioners of, which allows you to have the luxury of understanding the culture of the league, its history, past transactional disputes or past transactional decisions, uh, precedent, if you will, all of these advantages. But most of our listeners don't have that advantage. Their commissioners are guys who do play in the league because, let's be honest, who, who wants to do it if you're not in the league, right? I mean, it's <laughs> it's, it's it's a fairly thankless job at best. And, uh, you know, why do you want guys phoning you at 1 o'clock in the morning to gripe about your decisions? But the fact that they're in the league that they're, that they're commissioning often leads to concerns about favoritism or especially conflict of interest. Uh, how can a league uh, address concerns about that, do you think? Well, I have a good example in the American Dream League, which um, which I joined in uh, 1993, 
and I'm I'm still kind of the youngest guy in the league. Um, the, I'm I do the SWAT. I'm I'm the guy who handles the transactions and the communications and, and that stuff. I I took the job on because I wanted to get to know everybody better, and I have kept it mostly because nobody else wants it, and it's not that big a it's not that big a deal. But what we found is, you know, I really shouldn't be making decisions about the way the rules are interpreted. So in the league, we have commissioners, and those are the the last three winners in the league serve as commissioners. So when an issue comes up, um, I present the issue to the, the three commissioners, or, you know, they recuse, recuse themselves if they're involved with whatever the situation is. And they discuss it, and we um, between us we come up with a, decision that we think is fair and equitable. And, um, you know, not everybody always agrees, but everybody agrees that our intentions were the, were the correct intentions because the, the authority is distributed. If anybody sees it in a way that is maybe too extreme, there's a corrective there. And I, I think that's a powerful way to um, take this, this home league commissioner bullying problem out of, out of play. I, I get way too many questions about how do I handle a commissioner who, um, you know, plays such favorites with, with particular owners. And I, I, the only, as soon as a commissioner does that, I think you have to quit. It's, but, or find a, find a better way to administer it. But it's, um, it shouldn't be like that. Everything should be fair. Yeah, in my home league, the uh, Regina Rotisserie Baseball League, we have a commissioner who's responsible for getting the word out about stuff, but we don't allow him to make any actual single autocratic decisions about you know trades or if people if some owner in the league has a complaint, we have a mechanism where names are drawn out of a hat to be the three judges of the thing. The commissioner is a, a non-voting member of that committee in all instances to preside over it, but he doesn't get a say. And that's that seem, has seemed to work well for us. I think the key is you can't allow a single person to have an autocratic say about things that he's potentially involved in. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. And even the, the best-intentioned person, um, I'll, you know, I'll say me, and when I have to make a decision that involves a league in which I'm playing, I, I, all sorts of alarm bells go off in my head that Maybe the way I'm looking at it is because there is some little advantage to me this way or that way, and I don't want—I don't want to be making that decision. I—I I want people to respect my integrity, and—and um, and so distributing it among—I mean, pulling names out of a hat is good. It—it just—it—it lets it, once people start talking about what the issues are, then they can come up with an equitable solution to how to how to um, how to fix it. You also address the issue of perception. Even if you make a decision that, in your mind and honestly, is completely neutral, the guy who's being decided against says, yeah, you had an axe to grind or something, and, and can find something that you might not even have noticed about how it's an advantage to you. In general, Peter, regardless of the process, what's your opinion about leagues that allow votes or vetoes on play on owner roster decisions like trades or guys who make uh, seemingly unusual uh, waivers? I, I think um, the game is, is a creative game to play. And if you, um, we've all seen ridiculous trades that actually worked out in the favor of the guy who seemed to be making the horrible mistake. So I, um, my personal opinion is in season, there should be no um, there should be no mechanism to police those sorts of things. You can uh, it, it, let me put it this way: 
there should be no voting to approve trades because that only leads to um, a kind of mass. Uh, uh, everybody thinks this is a terrible trade for for a particular team, and then, but the the team might have very good reasons for doing it. So the voting turns into a. a, 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 a going to say a lynch mob, but it's not, I don't mean it as a lynch mob, but I mean it as a, where it becomes an exercise in groupthink, where people start going along because it takes on a certain kind of momentum, and, and that's not fair to the process of the players. If you have a player who makes terrible trades, if, um, who doesn't consider the, the league or the way that the league should be run, that's a good reason to kick that guy out and find somebody who, who plays along better, but that's a decision you make after the season, not during the season. That said, there are probably situations where trades are seen collusive or are so disruptive. I don't think you need to have a rule to vote on those trades. When that situation comes up, it's going to be so appalling that you'll you'll actually overrule your rule that doesn't have a rule to approve trades, and you, and you'll make you'll make a move. But I, that does, I don't know. I, that doesn't come up very often in any any leagues I play in, and. and um, the, your your goal as a player should be to play in leagues that you, where you trust everybody and they they play the game the right way. I liked your observation about groupthink, and in my experience, not just in fantasy baseball, but in committee work of of any description at nonprofits or in your job, that oftentimes it's the guy who talks the loudest that creates the the. Uh, the thinking of the group, because most people can't be bothered to think about it at all, and that's another danger to be avoided. But you you also said something uh, to the effect of uh, it should be fairly laissez-faire, that if a guy doesn't makes a move that you don't agree with, that's his right, it's his team. But what about, I know one of the tout leagues is facing an unusual situation, especially for a high-profile experts league, but it's pretty familiar to a lot of regular leagues, and that's a zombie team, a team that's not doing any transactions, leaving guys who are hurt and not replacing them, even though there's replacements that seem to be available to help them. How do you think a league should handle a team whose owner doesn't seem to be doing anything? Yeah, this has come up, and it's it's really interesting. Um, Mike Potter has brought it to my attention. He's in contention in the um, in the mixed the Tower Wars mixed draft league, and um, he was look, looking through and realized that a team hadn't made any transactions since the end of April, and they had a couple of guys on the DL. Those guys have since come back, but another guy has gone on the DL since then, and um, and, and <laughs> curiously, their team is still in contention, pretty much. They're, um, they've dropped a little bit, but they're in, they're in the middle of the pack. They're not doing terribly without having made any moves. Um, I think that it's possible, and Mike, Mike wrote a piece for the Tell Wars um, website about a, league, about a league that he's the commissioner in, in which they've developed a somewhat complicated, but what sounds like a pretty fair way of addressing um, the situation when teams don't make moves, for making sure that they get new players on their team when it's appropriate, without hurting the other teams in the league's selection of players. And I, I read it, and I think I can see how that might work in a league that you're playing in. In Tal Wars, we decided, um, I don't think we decided this in advance, but we decided last month that it would really be inappropriate for us to either notify, put the owner on notice that he's 
that his inaction is inappropriate or to make any efforts to um, to modify his team to keep it playing because we don't really know what's going on. We don't know um, if he's, we don't know the reasons why he's doing it. He might have some bizarre competitive reasons for doing it. I can't imagine what they are, but that could be a failure of my imagination. And although not doing anything is just as much an action as trying to fill in in some way, they're, they're both an action of sorts. Um, our feeling is since we didn't have anything in the rules that addressed this, that it was um, fairer all around to leave it alone at this point. Which isn't to say that in the future we might not say, this, we might not come up with a procedure for how to handle it, but um, if but we, but we um, we don't have that presently, and we thought it was better to let it go. Um, in the, I would suggest now, if in a league, in leagues where this problem comes up, I would think it would definitely be worthwhile coming up with a procedure for replacing players, or if an owner doesn't make obvious moves for a certain amount of time, put them on notice and, and, and you know, maybe have um, replacement owners. Uh, we have a lot of people who want to be in Towers who are qualified, and, you know, maybe if, maybe as we discuss it in the future, we'll say it's fair to everybody if we, if we let somebody come in and audition as an owner to replace this guy who's clearly not taking care of his team. But, I'm not saying that that's what we're going to do. I'm just saying there are a bunch of different alternatives. Um, if you work them out in advance, I think coming some of those more active solutions might be the right one, but um, not having it in advance, we decided inaction is definitely the, the right course to take. Yeah, it does seem like it's something that really should be dealt with in the off season. You just put up with it during the year. And we had this argument again in my home league uh, a few years ago about a guy who wasn't doing anything. And, and one of the arguments against doing anything to him or about him was his inaction isn't doing anything to change the league. And I think that argument fell on deaf ears largely because a lot of people were saying, yeah, but he's got a, a certain waivers position that had he exercised his waiver claim, that would have meant that one of the higher-up teams, maybe the you know third or fourth-place team, wouldn't have got a guy that they ended up getting, which had an effect on the race. That is, if the... If the non-actor had done what he really should have done, then then something would have happened, and you have a cascade that actually does affect the outcome of the race. And from that point of view, I think you're with, the league is within its rights to say to this guy, either run your team or get out of the league. But I don't. It, it's different in most home leagues; they haven't got replacement owners lining up like Tell Wars does, so it's a lot more difficult to find that mechanism. Yeah, I, um, the the owner uh, Mike Mike Potters point, pointed this out, and. When I looked at it more closely, I saw what his concern was in that he was ahead of this other team in every category. So he had nothing to gain by that team not playing. While there were other teams that he was competing against, who if this team falls in the standings, in the, in the um, counting stats, he's going to be passed by teams that are going to gain points, and that means gaining points on, on um, Potos or on the other frontrunners who are, who are ahead. That's an unfortunate thing, and uh, it's um, we're going to we're going to address it in the off season to see what um, see if we can come up with something that's fair um, that makes that makes sense. Um, but it's it's a complicated issue um, and one that uh, that I know a lot of leagues face from time to time. And again, 
I, you know, I don't think this owner is going to be back next year. Um, it's going to, it's going to take some heavy politicking, not politicking, explaining, um, right. explaining to, uh, to overcome this, this instance. Or else winning the league without doing anything would, would probably have a good impact as well. Yeah, it'd be a little tough to deal with if he wins or finishes second or something. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Peter Kreutzer from AskRotoMan.com. Peter, uh, every week uh, now that we're well into the season, we're starting to ha- head into trading time. And uh, as usual, we always want to try to buy low and sell high. Easier said than done, I know. But let's go through some of your picks for uh, buy low candidates, sell high candidates, and we'll start in the American League with a buy low pitcher. Who, who do you think in the American League is a guy that uh, could return good dividends? I think Jeremy Hellickson is the guy who, um, in the last few years, has seemingly done it with mirrors, and this year the mirror seemed to break. But I think it's more—it's uh, more that this year he's whatever whatever match he has hasn't worked, but it will work. Um, and I think we've we've seen some signs of that recently. Um, so I, I like I like him as a as a pickup who um, maybe maybe his owners are have gotten disgusted. If if they're still a little disgusted, you might be able to pick him up. How about a National League pitcher who's a buy low candidate? I, there's a clear cut case in Edwin Jackson. Being um, he's a guy who's pitching just the way he always has. He's and he's just had abysmal results. And um, I don't think there's any. He, he's not a dominant. Dominant guy, so you know he's he's certainly struggled in the first half. But I would think he's a he's a great guy to to make a bet on to try and get somebody to who's going to bounce back and have a, a really positive impact on your team in the second half. How about uh, an American League hitter that might make a good buy low? I may just be kind of overcompensating for liking this guy so much in the in the preseason, but I think Alex Avila, his his contact rate is cratered and he's he's um he's he's really been terrible but um he, he's only 26 years old he's two years removed from a really great season last year he he didn't hit very well but he was he was hurt he was coming he was coming back from injury he was in, he wasn't in a great position to succeed I, i'm not sure what's happened to him but i would um i think he's worth a, a bet and he's i think people are down on him enough at this point that he might actually be he might actually be really cheap, but unlike Hellickson, who, would, who might just have a little discount. And a National League hitter who's in that same position, a buy low? The guy I, I liked last week was Logan Morrison, who everybody had seemed to have forgotten. Um, he's gotten off to, since coming back, for, uh, coming off the DL, he's actually gotten off to a pretty good start, and, and people might be um, lighting up on him. So an alternative, alternative would be Delman Young, who um, is is a better player than he's shown. I don't. It's hard to know, you know, what goes through his head from day to day. Um, but I, I think he's a, a guy who could light it up a little bit. And they still have opportunities out there in the in the Phillies um, outfield. Moving on to the sell highs, Peter, we have a, a lot of players who are having surprisingly good years, and of course, some of them it's going to be a bit more smoke and mirrors than others. Let's start again in the American League with a pitcher. Who do you think is a guy that you could sell high? I, th- I think um, Irvin Santana has been has been terrific in the first half. He looks he looks good. He's pitching way better than he did last year, and and getting um, much much better results. But he's um, the results don't really what it, what he's doing don't um, support his ERA, and and um, you know so I think he's he's more like a 
350 to four pitcher than he's been so than the pitcher he's been so far this year. I talked with Todd Zola a few minutes ago about another guy uh, that he called a buy high candidate, which is a guy that's doing well and deserves to. I wonder what your opinion is briefly of uh, Iwakuma in Seattle. Um, he's been the best pitcher in baseball in, over the, the last year. He's been um, phenomenal, and uh, and it's that's all, as a starting pitcher, that's all we've seen of him. So it's hard to imagine. Um, it's been an extended period of, of uh, glorious success. And um, but I, I I look at the internals and and the you know the babips and the blah blahs and the beeps and I, he's he's running a hot streak. It's uh, he's going to he's going to be a fine fine pitcher, but he's not he's not the best pitcher in baseball, and uh, I don't think that he's going to be able to sustain that. I asked Todd this uh, because he made a, a similar point, and I'll ask you, how long does a guy have to maintain a hot streak before it just starts to become who he is? That's a good question. I, I think it's, it really depends on the pitcher. If you can see what they're doing and you can believe it, you, that hot streak shows up in a... In a you Darvish you know, didn't have it completely last year, but everybody could see that he was going to be a fine pitcher this year. And he's. I think he's kind of proven what he is as a pitcher. Um, guys who don't, who don't have quite the, the dominance, don't have quite the... It, it's, it's, it's kind of, it goes back to being kind of a um, combination of scouting and, um, and the numbers. If the numbers are there, but the scouting report isn't there, then it takes a little longer. If, um, if the scouting is there and the numbers aren't there, it takes a little longer. But if they're both there, then it doesn't take very long at all. In the National League, how about a pitcher you would sell high? Jeff Locke is the obvious guy. He's, he's, he's somewhat come out of nowhere, and his numbers are totally don't support a 2.05 ERA. At the same time, he, he should be an effective pitcher going forward, but he is, he's more, again, he's more like a 4, 380 type of, type of pitcher at this point, and uh, I think that's where we'll end up seeing him in the second half. On the hitting side, how about an American leaguer that you think uh, is a good sell-high candidate? Chris Davis is, has um, has proven himself at this point. Right after after years of disappointing you know, disappointment between last year and his hot start this year, it's uh, he's proven that he's the hitter, at least some something of the hitter that he was expected to be five years ago or whenever he first came up. Um, but I don't think. Any, but I don't. Not many players can sustain what he's done in the first half this year, and I, I don't expect him to continue that in the second half. And uh, a sell-high National League hitter, Gene Segura is kind of in the same place, except that he doesn't have the history of failure. He's only been a success, but he's, um, he's his power is surprised. He's um, his batting average is you know crazy, and uh, he's he's going to come back to earth. I don't. I I like him very much as a player going forward, but um, he's just having a superstar start to his career and uh and he's just he's not going to be a superstar at least for a couple more years you're listening to baseball hq radio patrick davitt with peter kreutzer from askroman.com and also rockremnants.com peter you have this interesting new site with some other fantasy baseball guys laura michael steve moyer uh, gene mccaffrey mike salfino and others uh, where did this idea for rockremnants.com come from and what is the site about I'd say that the the idea for the site was hatched, um, I don't know, six years ago in a hotel room in Phoenix, Arizona during the um, First Pitch Arizona conference. Um, the 
the guys and I would get together and um, we with a big bag of beers and and you know often tell stories about our um, our rock histories as as musicians for those guys for me as a um, as a fan and an appreciator concerts we went to people we saw quotes recommending songs that led to um, years and years of swapping. Um, song recommendations, band recommendations, and uh, really, uh, you know, not constantly, but from time to time, getting into um, email discussions about uh, about the stuff we like and the stuff we're listening to. That was that was always entertaining. And um, over the, I'd say, over the last couple of years, we've said, you know, let's we should have a, like just a website where we can show all this stuff and, and share it with people. Not because it's so, not because it's all so brilliant. It's, it's all, but because you know, it's fun. It's it's fun. It's fun to, um, it's fun to share. It's fun to see what other people's reactions are to stuff that you um, that you like or care about a lot or get excited about. So um, when I put the football magazine to bed um, in last month, I put together this. I put together a WordPress site and uh, invited everybody to start posting. And uh, we've, we're just having a ball, uh, you know, writing about, Laura Michaels has written about The Doors and The, and the Guess Who. Um, I've, I've written about, and The Jefferson Airplane, and I've written about The Mekons and various songs that I've seen. Steve Moyer is, you know, he gets, he likes to grouse about a lot of stuff and, um, <laughs> and promote the helicopters. And, uh, and, um, and Gene has, you know, a wide range of interests and, um, and has been posting regularly. And then Mike Salfino came up with this. Uh, he made an album. What would, be the ne- what would have been the next Beatles album um, that he, worked, he developed with his daughter um, using the songs from the, the first solo efforts of each of the Beatles after the, they broke up, after Let It Be. And um, so he put together this song list, two sides, I made an album cover for it, so we posted that, and um, it's just been it's just been a lot of fun doing that sort of thing. And you have a big project underway. You're, you guys have compiled the top fifty albums of all time. Not the first time that's been thought of, of course. But how did you build your list? My idea was, I, you know, I was thinking uh, we should we should do something that is uh, that is a statement about what we about what, where we come from. That isn't like us writing about what we came from. So my suggestion was, if we put together our 50 essential albums, so I came, being a numbers geek, I came up with a protocol for this, which turned out to be totally inadequate to everybody else's grousing in their own ideas about how they thought this should be done. Of course. So um, we submitted a list of 50 albums. So then we ca- I counted the, in- the songs that overlapped, the ones where we had um, overlapping references, in each of the lists, um, and then I and then I created a tiebreaker, basically using the those of us who rank them within the the list, giving them higher ranking higher rankings to the ones who ranked higher. So then, using all these different things, I ended up ranking them. It's somewhat arbitrary. I mean, I, a couple of us thought it was kind of stupid to rank them in the first place, but it's a good conversation. It's a it's a good way to keep the conversation lively, like. Um, and and right now I'm posting every couple of hours I'm posting the latest numbers so it's kind of like Memorial Day weekend you know how uh, big classic rock stations count down the 500 greatest songs of rock and roll 
that's a, we're kind of doing that um, to, and hopefully people will find us um, through through our various tweets and and uh, and Facebook and the, those who uh, enjoy it can join in. I did a few of these kind of lists when I was in the newspaper business years ago, Peter, and I always found the trouble was balancing the obvious choices or canonical choices, Sergeant Pepper, Exile on Main Street, Blonde on Blonde, that everybody kind of feels obliged to put on their list so as not to appear ignorant of the fact that they are iconic canonical choices. And I had two guys who worked in local record stores, and I invited them to participate, and they very deliberately excluded the Beatles, the Stones, Dylan, but they had four Buzzcocks albums each or something like that just to show how cool they were. And the problem I found was that if your list has mostly canonical choices, you're not really accomplishing much because you're the hundredth guy who says, hey, Sgt. Pepper and Exile on Main Street are really good. And if you have too few canonical choices, it starts to look like inside baseball, that you know, an exercise in, hey, look at me, I know who the Buzzcocks are. How did you guys find that balance, or did you care? Um, we had lots and lots of discussions about it, and I, I think that those discussions, some of them are going to end up on the website once this becomes a permanent page on the website. Because because it's um, not because we're so interesting, but because the I think the, the how to resolve it is really an interesting thing. I think a couple of us had Joni Mitchell albums on on our list, as you should. And Steve Moyer said, you know, Joni Mitchell is not rock and roll. She's no version of rock and roll, and he's wrong about that. But um, but his fervor about it has to be counterbalanced by our enthusiasm for particular things. Because Moyer's list is, is his, it's his my top 20 albums was kind of what kicked this off in my mind as, a, as why this might be fun. But he made a, a list of 50 records, a lot of which, you know, nobody in, outside of Sweden has, has, has heard of. <laughs> a lot of ABBA records. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's got, a lot, he's got a lot of ABBA on his list. No, it's, he's, he's a huge fan of the, the helicopters and, uh, who were a, a fantastic band, and Turbo Negro, who were also a fantastic band. And uh, his, his choices were great, but they, they didn't really meet the, uh, what had been the idea, which was to create a list of the 50 rock records you think would explain rock and roll to a Martian who came knocking at your door. Um, that, was, that was the idea. That's where the idea started. His didn't conform to that, but they also, but they did conform to his idea of what rock and roll is. So, um, so he got more votes, and he voted, and got some records on that um, might not have otherwise gotten on. And, and in that way, the, I think the, our list of fifty has a lot of the obvious things, has some surprising things, and um, you know, it's, it's going to be a good place to to start to look if you if you don't know. And then from there, we're going to publish each of our lists of fifty. And there's lots and lots of, you know, curious and interesting stuff on each of those. Since we're talking about music, Peter, uh, what cool tune can you recommend for our listeners here on the show? The song I would recommend for you this week is uh, Gene McCaffrey's uh, Let's Go to the Moon. Um, it's one of my favorite songs. I play it all the time. It's a hit. It's got hit written all over it. And, uh, and it ties in very nicely with our uh, remnants of rock and roll website.
Peter, please remind our listeners how they can keep up with your work. I write regularly at uh, patentandco.com and uh, somewhat irregularly at blog.askrotoman.com. Though I am posting each month, I'm posting uh, updated player values for the previous, so that we can watch what players do as the season goes along, getting to their final value. Um, so dollar values for all, um, all hitters and pitchers. Um, there and uh, that's that's good enough, I think, for right now. All right, Peter. Thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again a little later on in the year, maybe once the top fifty is out and all the lists are out. Very curious about that kind of thing. I really enjoy it. Thank you, Patrick. I enjoy being on your show. That's Peter Kreutzer. Our regular commentaries are next. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Two balls and two strikes on it. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a foul. Left field. Way back. Blue Jays. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Glad you're here. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. Ryan Bloomfield is on deck with HQ matchups. And BaseballHQ.com batting buyer's guide columnist Dan Becker is in the hole with master notes. And leading off, it's our minor league minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon telling us about Kansas City right-handed pitching prospect Jordano Ventura. When viewers tune into the 2013 Futures game at City Field in New York, they may have a hard time picking out the Royals Jordano Ventura. The 5'11", 170-pound right-hander certainly does not look like your prototypical big league starter, but don't let his diminutive stature deceive you. As Ventura showed in last year's Futures game, he has some of the best raw stuff in the minors. Ventura comes after hitters with a plus 93 to 98 mile an hour fastball that has been clocked as a high as 102. He complements the hitter with a swing and miss curveball and a good but fairly inconsistent changeup. The entire package is enough to give Ventura the tools to dominate and he now has a career K rate of 9.9 per 9. Ventura got off to a quick start this year going 3-2 with a 2.34 ERA and 11 AA starts. He walked 20 while striking out 74 in 57 and 2 thirds innings earning him a midseason promotion to AAA Omaha. For now, Ventura lacks the type of command scouts look for in a frontline starter, and because of his lack of height, he doesn't get much downward tilt on his fastball. As a result, some scouts are split on his long-term role, with some seeing him as a potentially elite starter and others as a dominant reliever. Regardless of his long-term role, Jordano Ventura has one of the best fastballs in the minors and will be worth watching in the 2013 Futures game. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Corden. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. All season long, Rob Gordon, Jeremy Deloney, Colby Garropy, and Chris Maloney have reports and updates on the top prospects, organizational moves, daily call-up reports, and everything you need to keep tabs on rising stars. BaseballHQ.com's call-up reports this week have looked at Milwaukee right-hander Johnny Helweg, Minnesota right-hander Kyle Gibson, Houston first baseman Mark Krause, the Mets right-hander Zach Wheeler, and many more. And our minor league watch list, which highlights less heralded prospects who have a path to the majors, looks at Philadelphia third baseman Cody Ash, San Francisco outfielder Gary Brown, Cody Ash, 
San Francisco outfielder Gary Brown, Cubs third baseman Junior Lake, and more. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now it's time for HQ matchups, looking at individual pitcher skills for this week's games and how certain pitchers match up against their opposing lineups. The scale runs from 5, which is a must-start, to minus 5, which is a must-sit. With the skinny on games coming up, here's Ryan Bloomfield looking at John Lackey hosting the Padres and Trevor Cahill at Atlanta. John Lackey gets the highest matchup rating of any American League starter on Tuesday with a 3.09 mark against San Diego. So far, Lackey is putting together numbers we haven't seen since his Angels days with a 2.99 ERA and 120 whip on the season. His strong skill foundation, centered around a 4.3 strikeout-to-walk rate and a 50% ground ball rate, says he can keep this going throughout the season, and there's no fluke here. Lackey struck out 12 against Colorado in his last outing and should get an easier test this time out against the Padres. Homer Bailey faces Tim Lincecum and the Giants at home on Tuesday and gets a 2.7 matchup rating from the starting pitcher report. Bailey has a 5.26 ERA over the last month, but his skills over that time have been outstanding. He's posted a 9.3 strikeouts per 9, a 51% ground ball rate, and a 2.86 expected ERA in his last six starts. He's also put up BPVs over 110 in every month this year. Expect some better results from Bailey moving forward as his hit and strand rates stabilize and his true skills start to show through. Trevor Cahill did get off to a nice start on the surface as he posted a 2.88 ERA through April and May, but June has been a different story with a 9.30 mark in five starts this month. His underlying skills lie somewhere in between, but don't bet on a repeat from earlier this season. Cahill continues to struggle with his command with a 3.4 walks per nine. His extreme ground ball tendencies, he does have a 57% rate this year, limit the chance for a truly disastrous outing, but his 0.1 matchup rating against the Braves on Sunday indicate his recent stretch of poor starts might continue. And finally, Joe Saunders is a pitcher to shy away from as he gets a negative .77 matchup rating for Tuesday. Saunders is a soft tosser with only 4.7 strikeouts per nine and a 4.59 expected ERA this season, both of which should have most owners staying away. The lefty out of Virginia Tech faces Texas at Rangers Ballpark, which boosts run scoring by 22% according to BaseballHQ.com's park factors. Add it all up, and there's not much reason to expect success from Saunders in this outing. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Attention, daily streaming league and salary cap gamers, anyone who benefits from being able to match up pitchers, Ryan Bloomfield, Troy Martell, and Brian Brickley do comprehensive starting pitcher matchup reports every day at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com batting buyer's guide columnist Dan Becker talking this week about dirty deeds done dirt cheap. I didn't do so well in my first trade. I was eight years old and my older brother's friend convinced me to trade him Bo Jackson's Topps 1988 football rookie card for a 1982 Fleer Johnny Bench and a bent Topps 1984 Andy Van Slyke rookie. Now, considering Bo Jackson's rookie was one of the most sought-after and valuable football cards at the time, I'd say I didn't exactly get market value in return. I wasn't savvy about the value of cards involved in the deal. I was a chump and got treated like one. 
I was thinking about this calamitous swap recently in relation to a lot of the trade dealings I've experienced or seen in my leagues this season. Specifically, I am irked by the way some owners treat their potential trade partners as chumps. Not only does this approach fail to yield successful deals, it often breeds enmity between owners that may have otherwise been able to consummate a mutually beneficial swap. Trade deadlines are approaching in many redraft leagues. I thought it appropriate to share some advice for owners looking to complete some impact trades in the days and weeks ahead. Offer unto others as you'd have offered unto you. Why make an offer to someone else that you wouldn't consider yourself? I am not suggesting that you offer full value right away, although that is probably the most efficient way to make a deal, but even initial offers should be respectful of the other owner's intelligence. Four quarters does not equal a dollar. Spare parts in exchange for a stud offers rarely work, and yet they continue to be proffered in earnest in leagues everywhere. No owner is going to deal a premium talent for role players. Factor in that these types of offers require dropping some existing bench players to process, and the deal becomes even more lopsided and illogical. If it doesn't hurt, then it's probably a bad offer. The best way to get value is to offer value in return. If you find it's easy to include certain players in a deal, chances are your opponents will find it easy to decline that offer. But dragging a certain player into an offer feels like giving away your favorite toy. Chances are you're on the verge of making a compelling offer. Put up or shut up. For whatever reason, one for one, two for two type deals where players of equal value change hands seem to be happening less and less frequently these days. But these showdown-style deals are the types of competitive interactions that make fantasy baseball invigorating. Own your circumstances and trust your analysis. Things may not work out, but those bad results will have been born of a good process. Effective trading isn't about winning a particular deal. It's about improving your team in an effort to win a championship. Value is a nebulous concept in trade terms, as a player is only as valuable to you as he is likely to improve your overall team performance. So put some real thought into the offers you make this trade season, and don't be afraid to dare greatly and make offers that hurt. You'll get more deals done, and if your analysis is correct, win more leagues. BaseballHQ.com Batting Buyer's Guide columnist Dan Becker is a member of the Master Notes Rotation at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Master Notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of June the 28th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 24 of the 2013 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with the longtime fantasy expert Peter Kreutzer, a terrific guest and another of Fantasy Baseball's great guys. I also want to thank our regular guests from BaseballHQ.com. We like to call it the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our League Watch News analysts were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our minor league analyst was Rob Gordon. Our HQ matchups commentator was Ryan Bloomfield. And our Master Notes commentator this week, BaseballHQ.com Batting Buyer's Guide columnist Dan Becker. Be sure to check out BaseballHQ.com now and in the coming days for these features. Dr. HQ Rick Wilton continues his series on sports anatomy, looking at sports hernias. Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column looks at strategies for these new July monthly leagues. 
Vladimir Sedler's Alternatives column looks at splits and park factors for daily games. Plus, we have all our regular features on playing time, buyer's guides, facts and flukes, division outlooks, pitcher matchups, and much more. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can also check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. Also, feel free to join the 138 people in the cavalcade of astute and debonair followers of my personal Twitter account, at Patrick Davitt. Also, tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with Fred Zinke of MLB.com on another edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.